The long ages recorded in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 have long been a topic of debate and fascination among biblical scholars. I've recently had the opportunity to sit down with a distinguished scholar who holds a unique position on the matter. While firmly believing that these ages are historical and not merely symbolic, he also asserts there being gaps in the genealogies. Interestingly, he still believes in a young earth. Journey with us as we unravel the threads of his compelling arguments and delve into the reason behind his intriguing convictions. Hey everyone, this is Watcher Pastor, and tell you today I am on with Dr. Andrew Steinman. We're going to be talking about the Genesis genealogies. Why are people living so long? Are there gaps? What does that say about the age of the earth? How are you doing today, Dr. Steinman? I'm doing fine. I hope you are too. Yes, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. This, Thank uh, this you. Has been, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, so, uh, I just, you know, for people that aren't familiar with your work, uh, can you give us just a, a background of yourself and what you've written on in the past? Yeah, well, I'm, um, I just retired from Concordia University, Chicago, where I was Distinguished Professor of Theology and Hebrew. Uh, I taught there for 23 years. Uh, I've also been a parish pastor and a uh, nursing home chaplain and taught at other institutions as well. Um, I, I uh, got a bachelor's degree from University of Cincinnati, uh, a Master's of Divinity from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from the University of Michigan. Uh, I've written on uh, any number of Old Testament subjects. Uh, I've written commentaries on uh, Genesis, as well as uh, Daniel, First and Second Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, I have a commentary on Ezra that is yet to be published. Um, I've also written on some New Testament topics, uh, particularly surrounding the chronology of Jesus' birth and ministry. Um, and I've written a, a, an entire book on Bible chronology, wow. uh, one of my expertises. So uh, I've written a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is an absolute pleasure to talk about. So um, that, that's a big, big background there. Uh, obviously, you've written on some topics of the genealogies, a good amount like that. Um, so that's why we're here. For those not familiar with the topic, what would you say is the what would you say is the significance to the topic of genealogies in in the long ages? Yeah, well, I think the the significance here is that the Bible is portraying uh, real people, and it's portraying the blessing of God on those people that they live long lives. Um, and for me, the the genealogies are not primarily about chronology; they're about the messianic promise that's given first to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 and tracing the messianic line down from Adam first to Noah in the genealogy in Genesis 5 and then from Noah's son Shem down to Abram in the genealogy in Genesis 11. Uh, and the thread that I think uh, runs throughout the book of Genesis is the... Um, messianic promise. Uh, this is what Abraham gets when he's promised that all the nations of the world be blessed through him. Uh, and it even is almost at the very end of the book of Genesis with uh, Jacob on his deathbed uh, with, his, with his blessings on his sons, and he blesses Judah and promises the messianic line to come from Judah. Mm -hmm. So for me, the genealogies are more about Jesus than they are about calculating dates. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
of course you've got you know the conflict with science and does it actually conflict or not or all these questions of historicity and um, age of the earth and all that so obviously that's a hot topic um, but yeah that that's I, we're gonna have to dive into that a little bit uh, what you just yes. said there so um, in regards to history um, do you think the possibility that there are gaps or the the numbers are symbolic would hinder the doctrine of inspiration no i don't think so because we can demonstrate there are gaps in genealogies uh, elsewhere in the bible um and that that's been recognized for centuries and centuries and it's never bothered anybody who believes in the inspiration of scripture most famously if we go to the new testament you know matthew opens up with jesus genealogy and there, you know, he arranges it so he has three sets of 14 generations. And he does that by skipping some generations that are actually listed in the Old Testament. And nobody's ever said, well, that disqualifies Matthew from being inspired. Hmm. So uh, the idea that genealogies can skip generations um, is maybe strange to us because when we do genealogies nowadays, and in fact, I've researched my own, we don't skip generations. We try to find every generation going all the way back. Uh, but the Bible writers don't always do that. Um, the, the, the longest genealogy in the Old Testament is the genealogy of Ezra in the book of Ezra. And um, it very clearly skips some generations. Um, and nobody said, well, Ezra's not inspired. <laughs> and this was known in antiquity. And, you know, the people who believed in inspiration in antiquity didn't have any trouble with it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting when when you read the different cultures back then and even today in, in ancient Near Eastern countries where we we have the genealogies and they have no issue skipping them, which is such a weird thing. But, uh, you know, from our perspective. So uh, from a Hebrew grammar perspective, you know, you there's the question of like, is this even possible? Because when you look at the text, it says stuff like, uh, you know, Adam begot Seth, which is like you know, most people are going to interpret as Adam gave birth to a child named Seth. And like, and that's it. Like, you can't have gaps in there because because that's what it says. But can you help us understand how uh, how that works in the Hebrew? I mean, is that a good translation? What are we supposed to think about that? Yeah, well, translators in this case are have a problem in that English doesn't have a way uh, of adequately, adequately expressing what the uh, Hebrew is saying there. Uh, it's not that it's uh, so much of a mistranslation, is that unless you want to make the genealogy pages and pages long <laughs> by, by putting in a full translation that tries to get to the, every nuance of the verb, mm -hmm. um, you can't do it. And nobody wants a Bible that gets that long. Uh, so when it says begat in English or fathered or something like that, that's an attempt to approximate uh, the Hebrew verb. Um, but the verb form here is an interesting one. Um, Hebrew verbs will have several, the verb root will have several different conjugations. And the way the verb is conjugated, the way it's formed, will uh, tell you um, something about the action. So there's a, a basic formation that just tells you the action. Uh, but there is a formation that adds cause to the action. So uh, 
for instance, if you had the word uh, to go um, in Hebrew, well, then to cause to go would be that one, which ends up being bring in English. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, here we have the causative form of the verb throughout these genealogies. It's not um, fathered or begat. The verb actually means to bear a, a child. Uh, it's used elsewhere that way in its basic meaning. And in the causative meaning, then, it's to cause someone to bear a child. Hmm. And uh, as often happens with these causative verbs, sometimes one, there's two direct objects then, cause someone, first direct object to bear a child, second direct object. And often with these verbs, um, when they're used, one of the direct objects is left out as kind of assumed or not needed to be uh, expressed. We do this sometimes in English, leave out a direct object. If somebody uh, tells you something and you already know it, you'll, you'll say, well, I know you know what, right? There's a direct object there you've left (laughs) out, but it doesn't need to be expressed. Uh, Everybody kind of understands um, that the kind of implied direct object when you do that in English. So we do the same thing at times. On these genealogies, it really says, um, for instance, Adam caused someone, presumably Eve, um, to bear Seth. Now, sometimes that's the, he, he caused the next generation. Uh, we can see that with Adam and Seth. Those are clearly father and son. And there are other mm-hmm. places in the Genesis genealogies where we know someone named their son a certain name. So probably implies that's father to son. But it doesn't mean that in the other generations that we don't know that it goes directly to the son. It could be a grandson, a great-grandson, you can cause the birth of somebody many generations down the line simply by your actions now. And that happens with causatives even in English, right? You can do something, uh, cause something, but the result doesn't happen for some time later. Uh, there can be a time gap. Hmm. Uh, and the verb actually is used this way uh, in a couple of places where it's pretty obvious. So in Deuteronomy 4.25, this verb is used in the causative, and Moses is telling the people of Israel, when you come into the land of Israel, and when you have children and grandchildren, now have there is cause the birth of. Now you can beget children, but you can't beget grandchildren. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean beget there. It means cause the birth of grandchildren. Uh, okay, and you can cause them by getting married and having children of your own, right? But you can't beget grandchildren. So right there, we know it's being used as a causative. Um, there's another place uh, in Second Kings 20, uh, 18, which has a parallel in Isaiah 37, 9, where Hezekiah, it's prophesied to him that he will cause the birth of children who will be taken into captivity and may be made eunuchs. Now, that's very unlikely to be his children. They would uh, have to have been, by the time the Babylonian captivity happened, at least in their 80s, if not over 100 years old. Um, nobody's going to make eunuchs out of men that are, you know, <laughs> 80 years old or something like that. There's no point to it. You would make a eunuch out of a man if you're going to have him serve in your royal court or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So again, it's it's causative. It's talking about some descendants of Hezekiah, two or three or four generations down the line, uh, that he is going to cause the birth of. Uh, and so we can ver very clearly see this causative. So when we have um, statements like so and so was X years old, and he caused the birth of, and then we have another name. Mm -hmm. We only know he at a certain point in time he something happened to him that caused an eventual birth down the line somewhere. And unless we have additional information to say that was a son and not a grandson or a great grandson, we don't know how many generations are between the one person and the mm -hmm. other. That's and this is why you could have gaps. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense because. Uh, you know, if we're assuming a certain type of way to interpret the word, then that that could have an issue with, oh, you know, the Bible's lying or the Bible's wrong. But if we're interpreting, if we're interpreting, interpreting, why can't I pronounce yes, that? If, if we are interpreting it correctly, then uh, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, so um, you, you notice, you, you point out a lot of times in your works that there are gaps all over the place in the genealogies in the Bible. So before we even dive into Genesis 5 and 11 in that regard, let's talk about some other texts. Do you have any ones that in particular that stand out as far as like, this is obviously a gap in the genealogy? Yeah, I think the genealogy of David that we find at the end of the book of Ruth is a very good example. Uh, it's 10 generations long, uh, and it extends uh, from before the Exodus, um, really from one of the sons of Jacob, all the way down to David. Now, there has to be more than 10 generations during that time period. And then, a matter of fact, if you look in the book of Leviticus and look at the um, priestly line mm -hmm. that starts with Korah um, and goes down, at, during that same period of time, in that genealogy, there's 19 generations. Now, why is that important? Well, if you're a priest um, you or a Levite serving in the Old Testament, you have to prove your descent. If you're a priest, you have to prove that you're descended from Aaron. Um, and so they wouldn't skip generations in that case because they want to show every link so that they can show that, yes, I am eligible to be a priest. Hmm. So there's 19 generations in the priestly line, in the kingly line leading to David, there's only 10. Now, what's the, what's the chances of that? I mean, it might be 19 verses 17 or 19 verses 18 or 19 verses 20 or something like that, but it wouldn't be 19 verses 10. Hmm. Um, and you can, you can also look within that genealogy and see some other uh, interesting things. And so from the time of the uh, Exodus to the time of David, uh, you can compare it. Uh, and I've done that in my papers. And you can see that there's a, there's problems there too. There has to be gaps in that genealogy. Uh, and I think there's a reason for the gaps in those genealogies. Um, David is the 10th uh, person. And 10 is a very significant number in the Bible, especially in the Pentateuch. And I think the genealogy in Ruth is imitating uh, the genealogies in the Pentateuch. And seven is a very significant number in the Pentateuch. 
Well, Boaz happens to be number seven, hmm. and David happens to be number 10 in that genealogy. And I think the author of Ruth skipped generations to make that happen so that he could highlight Boaz, who's you know the most important man in the book of Ruth. Um, maybe not the most important person, that'd probably be Ruth or Naomi, uh, but the most important man. And David, of course, is very important because he's the great king of Israel in the Old sure. Testament. So uh, what, what the author has done there is he skipped generations in order to highlight certain people. Uh, and this is not uncommon. As I mentioned before, if you go to Ezra's genealogy, Ezra, who's from a priestly line, there are several high priests that are left out of his genealogies um, uh, in the book of Ezra. And the reason for that is probably it was a very long genealogy and they didn't want to take up a lot of space so that they, they shortened it a little bit. Uh, and you can actually find the names of the people uh, that are left out uh, in the Ezra genealogy. In fact, in my commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, I uh, show that genealogy and show you which names are left out. Very fascinating. Okay, so, you know, for someone, you know, might still be skeptical. It's like, okay, you know, those, those names in that specific places, David and, uh, gosh, I already forgot the, last, the other one. Boaz. Um, but yeah, David and Boaz. They are in some, you know, interesting spot, but it could be a coincidence. So when you're comparing a genealogy of 20 or 19 compared with 10, it, I mean, scientifically, it's possible, like, maybe they have children later or something like that. Like, you don't see that as a possibility here? Um, well, it could be, but the problem is, is the grammar doesn't allow you just to say, I'm going to assume this is father to son and add things up. It just doesn't uh, work. And it causes other problems uh, in the genealogies too, if you make that assumption. Hmm. Um, and in fact, it's usually assumed that when the people want to add these things up, that, you know, so-and-so was, let's say 200 years old and he had a son. And it's assumed, well, 200 years old means that's when the son was born. And so we can, you know, start adding things up. But there are two places in the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 where that clearly is wrong. And this has been known again since antiquity. One is that we're told that Noah uh, had his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? He caused their birth when he was 500 years old. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, that would require them to be triplets. Um, they're all direct objects. Uh, it's a compound direct object of the one verb. And if one hap if it's a compound direct object, if it happened to one, it happened to all three. So you have to put the, all three of their birth when Noah is 500 years old. Well, then we're told that twice um, when Noah went on the ark and the flood started, Noah was 600 years old. Okay, so they all have to be 100 years old at that point. But then when we get to the genealogies, we see that we are told that Shem had a son when he was 100 years old, two years after the flood. Well, if you assume he was born when Noah was 500, he should have been 102 years old, mm -hmm. not 100 years old. So that doesn't work very well um, right there. But it gets even worse when we get to Abraham and his brothers. Now, Terah, Abraham's father, 
uh, we are told how old he is, 70 years old, and he has three sons, uh, just like Noah. Uh, and later on in Genesis 12, 4, we're told that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, and this is placed in Genesis after the death of Terah. But Terah died at the age of 205 years. So if you do a little arithmetic there, you find out that Terah was actually 130 years old when Abram was born. You take 205, subtract 75, you get 130. Hmm. So trying to understand that, oh, they caused the birth meant that's when the child was born. Mm -hmm. That's obviously not correct. Now, this again was recognized in antiquity. Uh, and the there were attempts in antiquity to try to deal with it. So in the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version of uh, Genesis that was uh, translated in antiquity, they make a couple little changes to try to deal with this. They say that Terah lived in Haran for 205 years, and they think they've solved the problem there. Okay. Uh, so what they actually did is they adjusted the text because they recognized a problem. Interestingly enough, if we go to the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Pentateuch is preserved by the Samaritans. Um, the Samaritans only recognize the five books of Moses as scripture. What they do there is they adjust the numbers to make them work out all right. So they actually changed the text again because they understood all the text that we received has a problem if we make this assumption. And so they actually changed the numbers to fit their assumption rather than changing their assumption. Uh, it's, it's kind of like you've got a jigsaw puzzle and this piece, I think it should go here, but doesn't fit. So I'm going to get out the scissors and make it fit. Well, that's, that's a, a problem. And again, these problems have been recognized since antiquity and there've been modern attempts to solve it. So in some Bible translations, when you come to Terah, instead of saying uh, when Terah was so many years old, it says after Terah was so many years old to try to solve the problem. The problem is that the same wording that's used for Terah bearing his children or begetting or fathering or causing them to be born, to be more accurate, um, the same wording is used everywhere else in those genealogies. It's a formula. So if the formula means after in the case of Terra, then it probably means after in the case of everybody else. And if it's after, then you can't calculate because you don't know how long after. Hmm. So, um, like I said, there've been, this has been recognized for centuries and centuries going all the way back to antiquity. Um, but nobody wants to cope with the real issue and the real issue, the Hebrew does not say when so-and-so was so many years old, his son was born. It doesn't say that. It says he caused someone, unstated, to bear a child. Hmm. Um, and once you realize that, then you realize some of these may be father to son. And we, we have that, uh, you know. Um, so Noah's father named him Noah for a reason. We're told this in the book of Genesis. So we know that one is father to son. Um, but some of them were not told that. We don't know where the gaps may or may not be here, mm -hmm. but um, there definitely are 
um, potential for gaps here. And so you can't just add it up and say, well, we know when the flood happened or we know when creation mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 that's very helpful. So uh, you also wrote in your, your papers about Exodus 6. Would you mind bringing up that topic here? Uh, the, um, the genealogy of Moses and yeah. Aaron. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have their genealogy there. It's really short, um, only a few generations. And we know that the people of Israel were in Egypt for 430 years. And it can't just be a, a few generations, three or four generations. It has to be more than that. Um, there again, you have the uh, used the words uh, daughter um, or son. And in Hebrew, son or daughter can mean the way we use it, you know, um, the next generation. But son or daughter has um, a much wider meaning in Hebrew. Son can sometimes be used to mean a grandson, a great-grandson, any male descendant. The same with daughter. So when you look at that genealogy of uh, Moses and Aaron there, you know, and it says son or daughter, you have to understand that might mean granddaughter or great-granddaughter or grandson or great-grandson. Um, and we should probably know this from the New Testament where Jesus is called son of David and is very clearly not the next generation from David. Um, so that um, makes it uh, quite obvious that, um, you know, when you have genealogies that say so-and-so son of so-and-so. You have to be very careful. Do you have other information that it actually means son mm -hmm. or can it mean grandson or great-grandson? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you, uh, and of course, you know, there's been lots of debate on, you know, when the Exodus was and how we're supposed to date that, that 430. And a lot of people see it as symbolic or that it's an approximation or something. But uh, there's also evidence in First Chronicles seven, that the the time span of four generations that Exodus six portrays might have been a lot longer than that. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Well, there are other other genealogies, and if you look at the other genealogies in Chronicles, Chronicles starts out with genealogies of many of the tribes, not all the tribes, but many of the tribes. And if you look at those genealogies, you'll see that there's more generations there. So in First Chronicles seven, I'm trying to remember which tribe it is now. Um, uh, you know, sometimes. Oh, pardon. Ephraim. Oh, Ephraim. Yeah, if you look at the the uh, generations of Ephraim, you will see that there's many more than four generations there. Um, that that goes from um, Joseph's son uh, Ephraim down to the uh, Exodus. Um, and so it's pretty clear that, again, with Moses um, being from the tribe of Levi, uh, there were more than three or four generations for Moses. Um, the, for Ephraim, there's, there's many more. Um, and so, uh, again, you just have to get used to the idea that sometimes when giving a genealogical notice in the Bible, the authors simply skip over generations. They're only interested maybe in the more important people in the genealogy. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like your comment earlier that, you know, when we're asking, like, you know, maybe it's still possible that these are literal and we're just, you know, assuming too much. But you talk about, you said, you said like, we can't just assume 
that it's it's zero. That's not the default, and that's, right. that's, that's a really interesting approach. Even even one of your works, you said that that at least like something like half or a, even more than half of the genealogies have gaps in it. So there, there, in that case, like there's no way we should assume that it's it has no gaps by default. Yes, I and I and I think you you just have to remember that we can't bring our modern view and impose it on ancient Israelites. We have to ask what were the ancient Israelites doing and how did they understand things? This this comes up all the time. Uh, sometimes uh, I've seen this where people argue, well, a straightforward interpretation of this would be, well, what's straightforward? What makes sense to you or what may, would have made sense to an ancient writer and an ancient reader? True, right. Um, and so I, you know, I resist the idea of a, a straightforward reading. I always ask, no, what reading did the author intend? Hmm. That's what we're up to. Um, and we could talk about the divine author, God, but the divine author worked through human authors who wrote in their own language to people who um, were reading it with their own assumptions in antiquity. Hmm. How would the ancients have read this? Yeah. What yeah. would they have expected? Not how would a modern person read this and what makes sense to a modern person? Mm. Yeah. So could you give us, um, you, you mentioned it before, but could you give us a little bit of a summary of uh, just the, a general idea of what's going on between the different texts, whether it be Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, Masoretic text? Um, you know, there's different ways that people have summarized, like, oh, maybe the Septuagint is adding so many years. What, what's going on? Just give a just general summary. Yeah, I, I well, I did a study of all the um, variants in the text between those uh, three texts, the Masoretic text, the traditional Hebrew text, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation, and the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is in Hebrew too. So we have one in Greek and two in Hebrew. And what you find out in general is the Masoretic text um, tends not to add things and when it when it has uh, when it there's a transmission error you know these had to be copied year after year uh, over um when it has a, a what we would say is a mistaken text it's oftentimes simply somebody miscopied something not an intentional there are a few intentional things the samaritan pentateuch has some very intentional changes and you can see this when you compare all the variants across Genesis from Genesis 1 through Genesis 50. Hmm. And the Septuagint has even more of these intentional changes. Now, when we get to the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, what we find is that both the Samaritan Pentateuch uh, and the Septuagint are adjusting the ages of people um, because they perceive a problem in the text. So um, Septuagint is, is the most egregious of these in the Genesis 11 genealogies. Um, if you took the Masoretic text and you just assume again, you know, that you could add those ages up and so forth. When Abram is born, a lot of those people in that genealogy would still be alive going, you know, all the way back to the beginning of the genealogies, mm -hmm. which is kind of ridiculous when you think of it, that he would have that many ancestors still alive um not just his father or his grandfather but you know going all the way back to shem 
Um, and then, you know, when Ishmael is alive, four of those people would have still been alive um, when Ishmael is born. And when Isaac's born, some of them would still be alive. And it just becomes ridiculous. And when you also note that Abraham at one point doubts whether they're going to have children because he's 100 years old. He's, am I vigorous enough to have children? Right. Because he's worried about the God's promise that he's going to have a son that's, you know, and how can Abraham be worried about being vigorous enough to have a child at 100 years old if he still had ancestors that were three and four and 500 years old mm -hmm. that were still alive? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. It defies logic. And so what the Septuagint did is it went through with a, a, a quite a number of those ancestors and reduce their ages by 100 years, which ended up making them not being around. Only Abraham's great-grandfather, grandfather, and father would have been around under those circumstances mm -hmm. if you just reduce the numbers of certain ancestors 100 years. Mm -hmm. The Samaritan Pentateuch goes even further and reduces the numbers so only Abraham's father is uh, alive when Abraham oh, is born. Wow. Okay, so again, they recognized a problem, and instead of adjusting their view of the text, they adjusted the text itself. Hmm. Um, and you can see that this is a general tendency, especially in the Septuagint. We're going to adjust things whenever we see that there is a perceived problem in the text. Uh, one that doesn't have to do with genealogies, just to give you an example of this. Hmm. When... Um, Joseph brings his two sons in to have his father bless them in Egypt. Um, Jacob adopts those two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own. And he says, these will be counted as my children. If you have more children, they'll be counted as your children. Okay, well, the, 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 Joseph never has any more children. So what does the Septuagint do? Well, they, they see that as a problem. So later on, instead of saying Joseph had two children, they say Joseph had nine children. <laughs> then it solves that perceived problem. And this is something that the Septuagint does all over the place. Wherever they mm. see something might be a problem, they'll change the text a little bit in order to um, solve that perceived problem. They're doing that in the genealogies here. Uh, in Genesis 5, they adjust the ages, and in Genesis 11, they adjust the ages again. And it, it solves some of these perceived problems. Hmm. Uh, so again, we, we note that the problem with adding up the genealogies and determining chronology um, was recognized already in antiquity. It's not some problem that we've just recognized in modern times. It was recognized in antiquity, and they tried to deal with it in their own way, uh, probably not a good way. You just change God's word to, to match your <laughs> expectations. But that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah, that is so fascinating how, you know, people today, it's like, you know, you do not change God's word. You know, they get all upset with translations. And you have people back then just doing it, you know. And such a, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it, honestly. But uh, so... In the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, you have a lot of people that are thinking, hey, you know, you've got the the ages of when the people are, are born. You have, or 
when the father gives birth at least um then you have the the total lives lived and how long they live after being born and it looks i like a lot of people think that it looks like there is a, you know a, a record being a chronology being built here to for like why why else put all these different numbers in here very detailed if we're not trying to figure out you know the the age of the earth or or how long it took between this time and this time what do you, what do you think about that like do you see that intuition does that make any sense to you well i understand the reasoning behind that uh, and the impulse to go that way and uh, again this the impulse was there in antiquity but i think it in my mind it kind of misses the point of these genealogies i think the point of these genealogies is just show the ancestors of the messiah and how god gives this promise and sees it through history uh, now history slows down in the book of genesis when you get to abraham mm-hmm. um, but it, he sees his promise through history and i think the point of these ages is to show god's blessing on these people that they live long lives um you know, people often say, well, how come they live so such long lives before the flood? Well, I don't know that everybody was living really long lives before the flood. I only know about 10 individuals, really, Adam to Noah. For all I know, people were living longer lives before the flood, but not as long as these guys. I mean, we don't know. Again, we're making an assumption about something we don't know because we only have 10 individuals. And we have 10 individuals in the Messianic line that have God's blessings. Clearly, a, a person like Enoch has God's blessing where God took him and he didn't even die, right? Took him directly to heaven. Um, Seth has God's blessing because he's the the one son from Adam that leads to this Messianic line. Cain's disqualified because he killed Abel and Abel's not around to do it. So... Um, there you you know you have god's blessing so i look at these long lives uh as saying god bless these individuals now we know god blesses individuals and gives them long lives by looking at other people in the bible moses lives 120 years certainly way out of line for people in moses day whose lifespan usually ended at around 50. and if they were really lucky they might have made it to 70. You know, uh, nowadays, you know, we have people living 70, 80, 90 years old. Uh, it's become really common because of modern science. But in antiquity, if you live to be 50, that was pretty ripe old age. Hmm. Here, Moses lives 120. Why? Because God blessed him as the leader of Israel. Um, we have Joseph who lives a long life because God blessed him. David lives, you know, a, a fairly long life for his uh, day. He lives to be 70. Very few of the kings of Israel lived to be 70 years old. Uh, we have the ages of them listed in the book of Kings, and 70 is a good long life. Uh, so again, um, we know that people were blessed by God to, to live long lives, and I think that's what's going on with, with these individuals in these genealogies. Says it shows God's blessing on them because God chose them to be ancestors hmm. of the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess the logic goes that you you see these ages in the text, and while our intuition might be to think a specific way, there's a number of different options. And what you're saying is the 
it seems like you know with uh well i guess maybe maybe you can uh, flush that out a little bit what makes you when you look at those numbers think that's god's blessing them is there something in the text that says god's blessing them and that's why they're living long how do you come to that conclusion well i come to that conclusion because uh, the book of Genesis, Moses in the book of Genesis is very carefully following the Messianic line all the way from Adam and Eve down to Judah at the end of the book. Um, and he's mentioning all these names. Um, so he'll he'll follow other people, you know, he'll give you Ishmael and he'll tell you a little bit about Ishmael's descendants, but then he drops it because it's not that important. And when we get Noah coming off the ark after the uh, Noah comes off the ark in Genesis 10, we get what's often called the table of nations. And he tells you what happened to the descendants of Ham, Shem and Japheth. Mm -hmm. Right. And you get a little bit of their descendants. But he drops um, Japheth and Ham and only follows the line of Seth by giving you a, a genealogy that leads down to Abraham because that's the messianic line. It's nice to know what happened a little bit to Ham and Shem's on uh, Ham and Japheth's descendants, but we're really interested in Shem. Mm. And this is how the book of Genesis is set up. It will tell you about some of the sidelights a little bit, but it's always comes back and focuses on the messianic line. Uh, it'll tell you a little bit about Ishmael, but it's really interested in Isaac. Mm. It'll tell you about Esau, but it's really interested in Jacob. Yeah. You know, so that's what convinces me that these the, the point of these genealogies is messianic mm -hmm. and the promise of God, because that's the line that Moses kind of is single minded in following all the way from Adam to Judah and his brothers. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. OK, so the the question of the gaps is really challenging because there's a lot of narrative involved here. So Adam and Seth are, have their own little narrative going on. Seth and Enosh, uh, and Lamech and Noah, Noah and Shem, Eber and Peleg, Terah and Abram. They all have narratives where they are specifically saying in the narrative that this happened and this happened. And they're like, they're clearly like related. And, um, you know, Terah obviously was the father of Abraham. Um, right according to most scholars at least so that makes things challenging because there's only so many other options as far as gaps otherwise and a lot of people have said well hey you know if if we have no gaps here it seems implied that we should have no gaps in these other places and even if we do that doesn't give us much room for flexibility if we're going to try to you know postulate how many gaps are here or something like that so, yeah. I mean, what is the potential of there being gaps here with, with that reasoning here? Well, there could still be gaps. And if you, again, if we look at other genealogies, we know that some gene, other genealogies do have some that are father to son and some that aren't. So if we go again to the book of Ruth, we know Jesse was David's father, and it goes mm -hmm. Jesse David at the end of that. Um, we, not, we know uh, Boaz has a son, right? The son is mentioned there. Um, we know that's father to son in that genealogy. So we know some of them are father to son, but we also know there has to be some gaps there. So just because we have some that are father to son doesn't mean they're all father to son. Hmm. Um, and we can see this in other genealogies. Again, you can go as late as the 
the Gospel of Matthew. We have, you know, Matthew does 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And we know in some of those there are gaps. And we know some of those are literally father to son. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's not, you know, there's not a lot of room for gaps in those, but there are gaps. Uh, and that's the important part. You can't just say because some are father to son, all are father to son. That mm-hmm. is not logically follow. Um, and and I think um, another thing that I, I've challenged people on who, who uh, you know, insist that these are all father to son mm-hmm. is, well, let's do the arithmetic and compare it to, a, you know, a extra biblical chronology. Um, if you do this, add this up, start with Abraham, work backwards to Shem, who survived the flood, you can supposedly date the flood. And people who do that will date the flood, and it's right in the middle of the fifth dynasty of ancient Egypt. So I say to them, explain to me how you can have a flood in the middle of the fifth dynasty of ancient Egypt, and immediately afterwards, continue on with the fifth dynasty of ancient Egypt. And I, I, I'll say to them, now, maybe the solution is the, the chronology of ancient Egypt, that that's widely accepted, is wrong. Now, there are several chronologies of ancient Egypt, but they all are very similar. You can, in the early dynasties, you can maybe vary it 100 years, but that's not enough to get around the problem. So I, I challenge them. Well, you can't just say, well, the Bible's right and the ancient chronologies are wrong because what you're really saying is my interpretation of the Bible is right and the ancient chronologies are wrong. Maybe the Bible is right all along and so are the ancient chronologies. And I would argue that it's an obscurantist position just to say, well, we're just going to ignore ancient Egyptian history, ancient uh, Mesopotamian history. You have the same problem if you would go to the ancient dynasties uh, in Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would have the same problem. Um, and the problem is that that we know these dynasties from inscriptions they left behind, from writings they've left behind. Um, so, you know, either you're going to say those writings are completely wrong. Um, you know, we have writings from pyramids in ancient Egypt, from other, you know, people are very familiar with hieroglyphics and that type of thing. Well, we have those inscriptions that enable us to do all this dating. Um, uh, again, the early dynasties, we can play with a hundred years or so, but that's not enough to get around the problem. And so I, I challenge people and say, okay, if you're going to say that, then it's incumbent upon you to show where the current chrono- chronological understanding of the chronology of ancient Egypt or the chronology of ancient Mesopotamia is wrong. Where is it now? I got a degree in ancient Near Eastern studies. I've seen the evidence. I think the evidence is unassailable that the ancient chronologies as we have them are fairly accurate. So show me where they're wrong. Well, nobody ever wants to do that because they can't. It seems to me that what we have here is there are gaps in the genealogies. We don't know how big, um, but they're gaps. And um, you can't have a flood in the middle of the fifth, fifth dynasty of ancient Egypt. It's just impossible. 
Hmm. Um, and uh, it's not enough to say, well, they must be wrong. Go to the evidence, show me where they're wrong. Um, and you can't do it. Nobody's been able to, to um, take that up that challenge and, and show me. Um, and, and nobody's even been willing to try as far as I know. Um, so that, that I think is, is something very important. I'm not saying that extra biblical evidence, uh, overrules the Bible. I'm saying extra biblical evidence can maybe sift through which interpretation of the Bible, um, is more likely. Hmm. Now, I, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but, uh, like, you know, patterns of evidence, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with them. They've yeah. attempted to at least, um, uh, ABR, like they, yeah, they attempt to. They they attempt to do this on very questionable grounds. Yeah, if we leave this out, if we if we ignore that, sometimes they argue, well, this is based on carbon dating, and carbon dating won't work back that far. Granted, carbon dating won't work back that far, but it's not based on carbon dating. It's based on actual inscriptions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we I I did a video on on how they do dating in Egyptian chronology, really interesting. So, uh, yeah, so like in your eyes, you've given your like interpretation for why they're so long and what's going on there. What would you say are the most popular ways to think about the ages for why they're so long and everything? What are the most popular interpretations? Yeah, well, uh, the long ages before the flood, oftentimes uh, people will argue that the say the Earth's climate was different. The climate changed after the flood, and that mm -hmm. accounts for the, the lifespans being reduced. I suppose that's a possibility. I'm kind of agnostic on the subject, really, as to why the ages changed. Okay. You know, I mean, obviously, you look at it, the, the ages given in the Genesis 5 genealogy are much longer for people. Then and they reduce quickly mm -hmm. until you get down to Terra, who's not living as as long as people before the flood. Mm -hmm. um, what causes that? I don't know. Um, whether that is climate, whether there's some other explanation for it, um, the the scripture doesn't say. I don't have any evidence, so I try not to speculate. Um, absence of evidence is just that no evidence i don't know why but people have tried to say the climate changed with the flood and that's what happened and you see this gradually decaying after the flood people's lives getting shorter and shorter but again i don't know that everybody's lives got shorter and shorter i only know about the 10 people or uh, if we combine the, the the genealogies the 20 people in those two genealogies i don't know about everybody in those generations and how long they were living I have no evidence. Maybe these guys were living longer than their contemporaries. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, and I refuse to speculate because that's just speculation. It, it really means nothing without any evidence behind it. I do know that, you know, people were living to be about 50 years old, 60 years old. Some people lived to be 70, 80, maybe even 90, but the majority of people uh, lived about 50 years. If they didn't die in a war or die of childhood diseases, they could yep. live to be about 50 years old. And this goes all the way back to the first dynasty of ancient Egypt and the earliest dynasties uh, in Mesopotamia. We know this to be true. Um, so what was going on with these 
gentlemen and why they were living longer. Mm. Uh, I'm going to give God credit for it and leave it at that. Mm. Uh, but you you don't think the numbers are symbolic though, right? No, I do not think they're symbolic. I think they're actual numbers. Uh, and I guess uh, we might get to the science question, but I'll throw it in now. Okay. You know, I don't think you can use the gaps in the genealogies to make the earth millions and billions of years old. That's a ridiculous reading of this text. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I don't know how the earth is because I can't, I don't believe you can base it on Genesis and adding up those ages. Uh, and I think the reason that many evangelicals want to add up the ages is because they're nervous about Darwinian evolution or, you know, the neo-Darwinian uh, approach in science. And so we can't allow any gaps in because all of a sudden they could be millions of years. Nobody, I don't think anybody thinks that that's a reasonable reading of Genesis. Even the most liberal of scholars doesn't believe that Genesis allows for millions of years back mm. to creation or back yeah. to the beginning of things. Um, I think you're getting nervous over nothing uh, when you do that. <laughs> I, I think the earth is young. I'm a, I, I've subscribed to a young earth creationist position, but not a young earth creationist position that can calculate the age of the earth based on Genesis. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a very interesting position, not a very rare uh, yeah. out there, which uh, that's why I I don't know when I read something. That's what I figured. I don't remember if you explicitly said that in your papers. And um, I was like, oh, wow, you know, uh, Dr. Simon's taking like an, an honest approach. I do appreciate that because you're one, you're not going out of your field to say, you know, argue all these other things. And two, you are, you know, trying to be reasonable and honest with the data and not letting your, you know, beliefs and, you know, fears, I guess. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I appreciate the, the, the pursuit of truth there. So um, you kind of hinted at it already. So you think that it's r ridiculous to say that we can add up for millions of years. Um, but you've done some calculations or attempted to what do you, what do you think is the maximum amount of time that we could calculate with the genealogies and is i mean is there even an ability to calculate like reasonably or do we just have no idea well you know you could say well let's assume that we have a gap of um 12 generations somewhere in the genealogies and then say, well, the average is so many years and you could multiply it out and come up and, and put in another thousand, 1100. I, in my paper, I give a number, you know, let's assume an average and I don't remember exactly what the numbers are anymore, but you know, you could end up with a, a thousand, 1100 extra years or something like that. But that's just an assumption, you know, uh, you, we don't really know. I, I can guess. And, and I want to emphasize, this is just a guess. <laughs> I have no evidence for it. I would guess that you could put, go back to creation and put it somewhere between 12,000 and 20,000 years ago. Just a guess. Hmm. I have no evidence for it. <laughs> okay. But the way I look at Genesis, you know, it's talking about real people who really lived those ages. There's probably some people missing. Uh, the flood certainly didn't happen by adding up the dates and, and determining it that way. It happened earlier than that. How much earlier? I don't know. I, I mean, I think it happened before recorded history, except for the recorded history in Genesis, of course. 
but how much before recorded history i don't know mm. um and and i i kind of refuse to really be pinned down because again no evidence yeah um you know i and like you said, it's not uh, some of these things are not my field. Now I do I do hold a degree in engineering, so I have some scientific background. Mm. Um, but I'm no scientist. I don't <laughs> pretend to be a scientist. Um, I do think some scientific theories, like uh, Neil Darwinism, is just ridiculous, um, and I think it's ridiculous on its face. Um, but it's convinced many people, and many people follow it. Um, I think if you examine its assumptions, it's, it's got some real problems. That being said, I'm not going to try to delve into science uh, to prove my point because that's not my area of expertise. Um, I'll leave that to other people. And they're very competent Christian scientists. And I don't mean the, the sect Christian scientists. I mean <laughs> Christians who are scientists. Yeah. Uh, who... Um, have written on this and I think have made very compelling cases. I've read much of their work. I think they make very compelling cases that mm -hmm. Darwinian, or we should really say neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory um, doesn't make any sense, doesn't fit with the actual scientific facts, as opposed to a reconstruction of those facts in the neo-Darwinian evolutionary view of things. Mm -hmm. Um so I've re I've read the, their work. I think it's it's competent. It's good. I don't have any trouble with it. You know, I'm all on the side of young Earth creationists. I just don't want us to interpret the Bible in such a way that we put ourselves in a box hmm. when we don't have to. The yeah. Bible doesn't say what you think it says. You know, I think the Hebrew is is quite clear that there might be gaps here. Why? wed ourselves to a particular interpretation and then we got problems it's it's kind of like you know the the um church in the late middle ages early renaissance wedding itself to a geocentric view of the solar system <laughs> yeah right and then it turns out to be wrong and then it calls everything into question yeah um why do we want to do that let's just stick with what we the, we can say that the text says and what what we can't say, we can't say. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, uh, just to bolster your case a little bit here, uh, you you mentioned in your papers about the positions of Enoch, Noah, Eber, and Abram in the genealogies here. What do you think is significant about that, and and what conclusions do you make based off of that? Yeah, well, uh, Eber is seven i mean sorry uh enoch is seventh mm -hmm. noah is tenth and then if you combine that with the genesis 11 genealogy eber who gives his name to the hebrews eber is where the word hebrew comes from and a very important name naming device by the way because abraham one time in in the old testament is called a hebrew so abram is called a hebrew one time and joseph twice is called a hebrew so it's a very important person hmm. eber um and uh it's uh eber then that is placed 14th double seven and then abram and his brothers are the 20th generation so we have seven and double seven um 
10 and double 10, 20. Now, these are important numbers in the Pentateuch. Uh, for instance, the Passover lamb is put aside on the seventh day of the month, sacrifice on the 10th day, right? You're to give a 10th of all your produce to God. Um, you know, if somebody should kill Cain, this is the curse that God puts on anybody that should kill Cain. What's he going to be avenged? Seven times, right? And if you start looking at seven and ten, they're very special numbers in the Pentateuch. And unlike any of those other numbers from one to 20. Okay. So what do we have here? I think we have, again, conscious positioning of people, skipping over some generations so you can get Enoch as seven, mm. Noah as 10, Eber as 14, and um, Abram and his brothers at 20. Yeah. So I think it shows us gaps. And I, going back to Ruth, I think the author of Ruth understood that. That's why he puts Boaz at seven in his genealogy and David at 10. He's imitating what he sees in the Pentateuch, and he's skipping generations to do it. So, you know, I think Ruth actually is is kind of a reminder. Oh, we're continuing on the um, Messianic line that we see in the Pentateuch because the Messianic line goes down to David now. Hmm. Okay, it starts um, with one of Judah's sons and goes all the way down now to to uh, David. Hmm. So, again... Uh, there's there's something going on there, and I think the author of Ruth actually understood what was going on in Genesis. Mm. Um, lately, I've actually taken to um, calculating this. If we assume that these are just randomly positioned people, right? It just happened randomly that way. Well, you can actually do the mathematical calculations, and I won't bore your readers with this. I've actually posted a paper on my academia edu site not a peer-reviewed paper just something i i put out there for people that have written me and said well how come this couldn't just be random so you can actually calculate this and it's much less than one percent chance it's like in the in the area of one thousandth of one percent that it's random or if you want to flip that around it's well over 99 percent chance that it's planned hmm. um, you can actually do the calculations just let's just assume it's random and just use um you know uh, probability theory right. and figure it out so this says to me uh, there's a there's a slight little chance it's not zero but it's certainly very close to zero <laughs> that this is random um, it has to be, uh, in my mind, something that the author did, Moses did, in order to uh, position these people at um, strategic positions in the genealogies. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, on the topic of symbolism, there's there's two people that stand out like by far. So you have Enoch who who died or was taken up at 365. And obviously that... You know, they were very particular about their numbers and their astronomy and, you know, the stars and all that. And um, also Lamech, who uh, dies at 777, which, 
you know, seven, 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 that, that has to be symbolic, right? I mean, do you think that those are symbolic at all? Well, actually the Lamech at 777, mm-hmm. um, I think is the one, one place in the genealogies where the Masoretic text has been changed. Oh, okay. If you compare it to, to the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch, they tend to reduce the number by 100. So you'd expect to be 677, but it's a completely different number in the Septuagint. Ah. And it, and the pattern, you know, you reduce it in the, and you, there's a pattern between the Septuagint and the uh, Samaritan Pentateuch and the Masoretic text. The pattern would suggest that the, the Septuagint, you just add 100 to it and get the right number, and and the Samaritan Pentateuch, the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I think somebody's actually changed Enoch. Why? Well, there's two Enochs. There's not just the, the guy who's taken up in heaven. There's an Enoch in the line of Cain that we read about in Genesis 4. Mm. Um, right? Um, and... Interestingly enough, the seventh guy in the line from Cain is a fellow who brags about killing a man. He says if Cain is going to be avenged 70 times or seven times, then I will be avenged 70, 70 or 77. It's, the mind doesn't work. But at any rate, it's based on seven. It's 77. Right? Yeah. 77. Yeah. Um, thank you. I Sometimes the mind does does funny <laughs> things to you. 77 times so i think they come to this godly enoch in the line of seth and they say well if those guys are seven and 77 we have to make him even better so they change the number to 777 (laughs) so there i think it's symbolic but it's a conscious change to the text in the masoretic text um again my um uh, my uh, paper on comparing the three texts, Masoretic text, Samaritan Pentateuch, and, and Septuagint talks about this mm-hmm. um, and why it is. Now, with uh, Enoch being 365, mm-hmm. that's an interesting one. I think he actually lived 365 uh, years. Is, okay. is it a reference to uh, the days of the year? Maybe, maybe not. Here's why. The most common... Um, calendar in the ancient Near East was not our calendar that we use nowadays, which has 365 days three times out of four, right? Um, 365 is approximately a solar year, 365 and a quarter, really. Um, But the most commonly used calendar in antiquity was the solar lunar calendar. You had lunar months of 29, alternating 29 and 30 days, because a lunar month is, you know, when the month, the, the, the moon goes through its phases, averages 29 and a half days. So a lunar year, 12 months, comes out to 354 days, not 365. Hmm. And then they would add in an extra month every once in a while to square it up with a solar year. Okay. Hmm. So that's the calendar that's assumed most elsewhere in the old testament um you can you can see that and that's how the modern jewish calendars to this day still works the egyptians however figured out early on that a uh, solar year is about 365 days and so about 
the 13th century BC, they started having what we call the Egyptian civil year. They had months of 30 days, 12 of them, and then five extra days at the end of the year. The ancient Israelites would have known that. It was being used in their day before they left Egypt. They go down in the 15th century, I believe, and they come out um, uh, after the 13th century. They, they come out um, after this civil calendar started being used, but not much after. So are they assuming the civil calendar or not? Well, 365 would work for the um, Egyptian civil, uh, civil calendar. Were they? That's what's being assumed. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, it seems they're not assuming the Egyptian civil calendar. Mm. So 365 may be symbolic. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to bet the farm on it. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously you have Jubilees and Book of Enoch. And Book of Enoch is, it seems to be implying that they saw that it was 365 and they thought, hey, he must be connected with the the stars and all of that. And he must know all about that astronomy and wisdom yeah. or something. So Yeah, well, and keep yeah. in mind, the Book of Enoch is, is much later. And by right. then you have the Roman calendars, which have 365 days in them. The Julian calendar uh, had 365 days. It's very similar to our calendar uh, with 365 days. Mm. So by then they would have known 365 and when the book of Enoch was being written mm-hmm. um, and their audience could assume it. That's a little bit different with Genesis audience. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, that, that case with Lamech. That's, that's, uh, I haven't heard that one before. Okay. Yeah. So let's see if we got anything else here. Uh, let's see. Oh, last question here. All right, Sumerian kings list. So obviously you have these long lists of kings' reigns, thousands and thousands of years, um, and they just happen to go down after the flood. So they're, you know, tens of thousands of years, and then all of a sudden they drop off right after the flood, just like Genesis does. Now, in Genesis, you have, it's not, completely dropped off like it's it's abraham of 175 right it's it's around 100 years somewhere around there which is a lot compared to what they typically recorded back then so um long story short the sumerian king's list what do you think's going on there does that play any influence on how you interpret genesis um not really i think if anything the sumerian sumerian the the king list it is simply a kind of a garbled recollection of what actually happened. Okay. Um, I think that's probably what's going on. You know, Moses, everything he writes in Genesis happened well before his lifetime. He had to have sources for it. I don't know what his sources were, <laughs> but um, he had to have sources for all of that. Uh, he, he wasn't a firsthand witness to any of it. And, and as, if you want to think about this in an extreme example, creation. Adam wasn't a, a, a witness to most of what happened at creation, right? Mm. It had to be revealed to Moses. Maybe some of these things were written records from his days. Maybe some of these things were revealed directly by God to Moses. But it seems to me that this the, the king list 
is probably a garbled recollection of the truth. The truth is found in Genesis. And the king's list is, oh, well, we remember something about long-lived people. We remember something about a flood. Um, but they get they get it all messed up. It's, you know, like a, that old game telephone when something is told generation after generation and it gets garbled. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I suspect, is what's going on in the Samaritan uh, Samaritan king and uh, not Samaritan Sumerian Sumerian king list. Uh, the Sumerian king list is simply um, a garbled real uh, recollection of what actually happened. Yeah. So I think there's probably some relationship to Genesis, but I don't think it's direct, and I don't think it's um, anything to be overly concerned about. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on here. Is well, thank it, you. It's, yeah. it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm glad we could uh, discuss some of these issues. Yeah, yeah, this is great to to get people more familiar on the topic here. Uh, is there any books that you're writing that you want people to know about, uh, different places they can check out your work, stuff like that? Yeah, well, you know, if they go to academia.edu and look up my name, uh, they can find all my published papers there. And a couple papers I put up there that haven't been published anywhere. I just published them there. Um, but most of them are peer-reviewed scholarly papers. Um, also, all my books are listed there. I, I had a book just published um, called The Messianic Message, which I co-wrote with my friend R. Reed Lessing, um, where we talk about the Old Testament's Messianic message uh, and how important it is to see uh, the Messiah, whom I believe is Jesus, uh, in the Old Testament. Um, just published from Concordia Publishing House last month. Uh, so that's, you know, um, uh, a book um, not very expensive, uh, written for a lay, lay audience um, that, that people might be interested in. Um, and then I think on the 5th of October, um, Crossway is going to publish the ESV Chronological Bible. I was the general editor for that. Um, the Bible is arranged in the chronological order of the events Hmm. um, and uh, organized into 365 readings day by day. Oh, wow. So you can read through it uh, in a year. Uh, The SV Chronological Bible contains my introductions to each day's reading. um, I'm the one who divided it into 365. It contains uh, my view of uh, chronology has a nice timeline in the back. I've got a few advanced copies, so I know exactly what it looks like. <laughs> um, and if, if readers are interested in a chronological Bible and reading things in chronological order, yeah, um, it's there. And I wrote all the introductions uh, uh, and edited uh, it into 365 readings. So those are my two latest works. And if, if people are interested in my chronology from Abraham to Paul, a biblical chronology. You can go to academia.edu or the Concordia Publishing House website, um, and it's listed there. And uh, and other things that most people won't be interested in, like my Aramaic grammar, are also <laughs> there too. Awesome. Uh, yeah, no, that, that Bible sounds really, really cool. We might have to talk about that later sometime. But, you know, it, thanks you so much for coming on here. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day, Dr. Steinman.
Okay. Thank you, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hmm.